I'm Tim Fleming, and this is Better Outcomes, a podcast about stories and experiences from the underrepresented minority side of medicine and healthcare, featuring both patients and providers with the goal of making medicine more equitable for more people. Kimberly Zeiselman is the president of Interact, an advocacy group for intersex youth. In this interview, she makes a point to forcefully dismiss the clinical term disorders of sexual development. And this really is the crux of all the issues we discuss. Intersex people do not need fixing. Kimberly is intersex herself. More specifically, she has androgen insensitivity syndrome, which I'll let her explain. This is just one of the many conditions that fall under the umbrella term intersex. Despite her doctors knowing this about her at a young age and trying to quote unquote fix it, Kimberly didn't learn this about herself until later on in life. And in this interview, she explains how that happened. You'll hear how shocking this was to me. Kimberly's story is not uncommon for intersex folks, but luckily is becoming at least less common today. With the dawn of the internet, immeasurable heaps of confidence and vulnerability, and some very hard work by some persistent people, intersex folks are making progress in society and in healthcare. Good morning, how are you doing? Good morning. Oops, I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. I, I have to yeah. say, um, it was a total cliche right at you know 9.59 a.m. Uh, yeah. My recorder says low battery. Like it was imme- oh, no. immediately I was like, oh my goodness. So I ended up running downstairs to my neighbor and saying, I need two AA batteries. So so thanks for, for uh, hanging on the line for a little bit. I appreciate it. Oh, no worries. Not at all. So I I have to say when I read your piece in Stat News, um, yeah. this is a an uh, I guess an issue that might be not the best word to use, but this is something that I've I've talked to my family about a, a good deal, but I haven't ever really been fully educated about what it means to be intersex, you know, what that condition or umbrella term for conditions actually is, and how it, you know, what it's like to live with that or or you know, anything, anything really more than just this is a thing and I should care about it. And so your piece was really my kind of introduction to it. So I guess in a way, thank you very much for that. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. And thank you for caring. Just the fact that you knew it was a thing, um, puts you ahead of most people at this point, unfortunately. So let's just dive right in kind of right off of that. Um, and I know I gave you that kind of list of questions and um, mm-hmm. we, we can sort of use it as a framework or just sort of go by the books. But one of the things that I feel like is probably pretty common for people who are intersex or, or have any kind of, um, you know, condition that falls within that umbrella is that they're doing a lot of education of people around them and also of their healthcare providers. Is that a fair assumption? Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of, I, I think, the burdens of, of being a, uh, an intersex person in our society right now, um, and I can really speak mostly um, about my own experiences and my experiences working with people in the U.S., although it is very similar um, in many places around the globe, that we really are on our own as far as understanding and managing our own healthcare as intersex adults. And there is very, um, very, very poor understanding of 
the many different uh, medical conditions that fall under the umbrella term of intersex, right? So um, when you, you know, walk into your primary care doctor's office or you have a, a specialty appointment for something and you write down, you mark on your, you know, intake form that you're intersex or that you have a particular condition, um, you'll you'll get a mix of results most often. Um, and and what my, what many of my peers uh, communicate as well is that there's a, a really big lack of understanding. So there is this sort of extra burden we have of having to kind of explain it, um, make sure that our healthcare providers understand what it means as well as what the potential impact is, you know, on us based on whatever the medical situation is that, we're, you know, non-intersex medical situation is that we're currently in the doctor's office for. Um, and that can be really, really traumatizing and triggering for folks who um, most intersex folks have experienced, you know, medically unnecessary interventions of different kinds and have experienced trauma um, in the exam room with doctors um, in different ways, you know, since childhood. And so it really sets us up for a, um, a very uncomfortable um, situation at best. And at worst, at worst, many, many people I know who are intersex just avoid doctors altogether, you know. So um, as a result, we're obviously going to have poor health outcomes, right, um, when this is the situation. Yeah, that's it's funny. I've heard from lots of different, you know, patients across the board who mm-hmm. have, you know, conditions that other, you know, not not intersex conditions, but other conditions that doctors don't typically understand or or, you know, physicians assistants or nurses don't typically understand and that, you know, healthcare setting avoidance is is common among you know, all sorts of people. And, and, and yeah. you're right. It obviously leads to, you know, some poor outcomes. Can you talk a bit about, you know, your experiences as a patient? Um, going back to the stat piece that, that you wrote, obviously this has been something that has affected you your whole life, but you weren't really aware of it until later on. Right. So I didn't realize um, the truth about myself and about my body and about my medical history until I was 41, and I'm 51 now. So for 40 years, I knew something was different, and I knew sort of these half-truths and lies that I was told by medical providers um, who treated me as a child, but it wasn't until... I was 41 and got a hold of my own medical records that I that I actually um, found out that I was intersex. And in fact, that term intersex didn't wasn't even something I heard right away. Hmm. I found out the name of the condition, which is androgen insensitivity syndrome, um, also was referred to back then as testicular feminization. Also, on my medical records, it said I was a male pseudo-hermaphrodite. Hmm. So all of those terms were pretty pretty hard to process um, for the first time. Never had heard any of them before. Um, I mean, I kind of joke about it. Like, you know, I wasn't even a real hermaphrodite. I was a male pseudo-hermaphrodite. Like, come on. Oh, boy. So the whole, <laughs> the whole, thing, was, the whole thing was so confusing at first. And um, 
you know, and just to back up, I think it's important to sort of um, kind of remind ourselves that, as you've said, intersex is really a broad umbrella term that describes a number of different, it describes a person who um, is born with physical sex traits or physical sex characteristics that don't line up with what we medically typically think of male or female. So it can be, it can involve your internal reproductive organs, it can involve your genitalia, it can involve um, chromosomes, hormone levels, one, all, you know, a mixture of all of that. So there's, there's many combinations. And so it's a very broad term we're talking about. So although there are many um, relatable themes in the intersex community, we all can relate to many similar themes in, in healthcare and feeling stigma and shame and, and, and all these things. There are so many different experiences. So just, I, I am speaking from, from one experience, which is my own, which in my case was as a woman born with, um, a person born with sex traits that um, didn't line up with kind of like the typical definition of female. So when I was born, I appeared uh, phenotypically and physically female in every way. There was no, you know, alarms going off at my birth Mm. because my external genitalia looked completely quote unquote typical. And so it wasn't for me until, and this is very common for people with androgen insensitivity syndrome, particularly complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, which is what I have. Um, androgen insensitivity syndrome in and of itself is not one thing. There's a spectrum or a range of sensitivity one can have to androgens. And so uh, we typically talk in the intersex world about complete androgen insensitivity like I have or partial. Okay. And so in my case, it was complete. And what that meant was um, I was completely uh, insensitive (laughs) to androgens, and we often think of testosterone, right? And so in um, when I was developing in the womb, my body, um, you know, I was born with XY chromosomes, which we typically think of as male, genetically male. And um, instead of ovaries or a uterus or fallopian tubes, which we think of right as female reproductive organs, I had um, testes that never descended. So when I was born, there was no evidence of that. But inside my body, I had XY chromosomes and testes. And um, none of that was known until I was 15 and still had not... um, uh, started menstruating and I have a younger sister who started menstruating at age 11. Um, so a year or so, um, had been menstruating for like a year or so. My parents thought, okay, I think it's time to have this checked out. Right. Um, I was brought to, uh, a Boston teaching hospital. Um, and you know, I guess diagnosed at that time at age 15, although I was never told, you know, the diagnosis. Um, what I was told was that you have partially formed uterus and ovaries, which was untrue, um, that will become cancerous if not removed soon. And so, of course, you know, this is what my parents were told as well. So they hear the cancer word. And this was 1982. So this is pre-internet. This is before right. parents could just go home and start Googling and get on forums and all of that. 
and get information, whether it's good or bad, they could get information. My parent, you know, this was back in the day when um, people just said, yes, doctor, sure. you know, whatever you say, doctor. And, um, and so it was this sort of social emergency was created or, you know, under the guise of a, it was a medical emergency was sort of created, right? You know, you know, oh, she may get cancer. You know, school got out that spring. I, I was scheduled for surgery, and that's kind of what my summer became about, you know, going in and having surgery, and it wasn't in and out. I was there for a few days. Again, this is 1982. And they removed my testes, um, which I now know from seeing my medical records were completely healthy, um, they were producing what was happening in my body. Um, and the reason why I, at age 15, looked female and had um, kind of gone through a fairly typical, except for a period, mm -hmm. female puberty was because my testes, my gonads had been pumping out, uh, sorry, pumping out testosterone and converting it to estrogen. Oh. So through a process called aromatization, and I'm not a medical person, but this is the stuff I've had to learn about my body. Right. Um, I actually was getting the hormones that I needed to feminize, to keep my bones strong, all of that stuff. That's important. And it was all taken away from me at age 15 under the guise of these could become cancerous um, simply because I now know people freaked out and said, well, a, a, a little girl, I mean, this is a, a young girl who identifies as girl. There's never been a question about my gender identity. And I was living quite happily as a, as a young high school student, a girl, we need to get these out of her, like sort of like this. So it really was a sort of social emergency that was driving it, but they used kind of the medical emergency of, of cancer and so there was like no debate, no question. Right. I mean, you know, my parents didn't even question it. And the reality is now we know in my case, and again, this is just my case, meaning this is someone right. with complete androgenous sensitivity syndrome. Those testes, those gonads were, were not at a high risk of cancer. In fact, it was less than 1% of a risk. So it was, it was just a com complete, um, I don't know what the word is. It was just not, it was just was not medically necessary at all to remove them. And I was actually getting benefit from them. So right. what, what happened as a result in my case is that, and, and in many cases of women with CAAS who, who have this, um, have their testes removed is I had to go on hormone replacement therapy and, um, have been on, uh, taking different forms of estrogen since age 15 so that I could reap the benefits of some benefits of, of having estrogen. And one of the things that, you know, doctors are most concerned about, or at least have communicated with me over the years is uh, bone density, making sure your bones are strong. And there's a high risk of osteoporosis and things if you don't have enough estrogen. And so the problem with that is, synthetic estrogen it, it, it's it's never as good as the real thing right, right. and so and and there's no research by the way and no there's no research that has been done over the years right with women with CAS or girls with CAS to determine what the best course of hormone replacement therapy is and so it's a total crapshoot and doctors are just guessing. And so my whole life to this day, I still 
we're just winging it, you know? And so it's one thing when you're 15 and then you get to be 51 and it's like, hmm, should we be doing something different now? You're older. I mean, nobody knows. And so I've had to along the way, you know, I've moved around in my life. I've, you know, never, I haven't had the whole doctor my whole life because I've moved around to different states and I have always had to kind of re-educate, but I, I only know what I know, right? right. So um, it's been a very um, tricky thing, and I am not alone in this. Um, many people with intersex traits um, are dealing with hormone replacement issues and hormone issues, and it's an area that we really, really need um, we really need attention. We really need adult-focused medical care because what we haven't talked about yet is that um, what medicine has done or has paid attention to is pediatric inter intersex kids. Like the whole focus, really, since um, you know the fifties and sixties, um, and increasingly so has been on fixing quote unquote intersex kids to fit, you know, the binary notions of male or female bodies, what we would typically expect. And so the whole focus on quote unquote caring for intersex people has Mm -hmm. been on making their bodies fit one of those two binary boxes as a child, as a baby. And, and that's what's developed intersex medicine or it's, as it's called in the uh, medical world, disorders of sex development. Mm -hmm. You notice I haven't said that because it feels very pathologizing and very stigmatizing. Um, A lot of people in our community have rejected that term. Um, I will often refer to it instead as difference of sex development, which feels more, uh, you know, accurate and more acceptable. Um, And we just commonly talk about intersex traits to kind of, um, to kind of catch all of the different um, conditions. But it, you know, it is something that people are really, um, really struggling with in in healthcare. And I think the way it's been, it's been addressed so far is just been trying to fix these kids. And so what's happening is there are medically unnecessary and irreversible surgeries happening to intersex kids every day that include things like the removing of of gonads or you know testes that are that are actually healthy and pumping out healthy hormones um or in cases where children are born with genitalia that don't look quote-unquote typical or normal they're the genitalia is um, surgerized to to look a different way and so in some cases that might be a right a a young girl, and this is common, a baby or a young girl with uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, CAH is one of the more common intersex traits or conditions, is often um, often comes with an enlarged clitoris. And so simply, that's it. The clitoris is a little bit larger than, quote unquote, what's typical. And so I think there's this, again, social emergency to fix and make this child look normal under the guise of, well, we don't want them to be made fun of. We don't want them to be different, you know, good intentions, but, um, poor follow through. There's horrible. No. And the outcomes are horrible. I mean, there's absolutely no 
medical necessity. I mean, the only thing that I've ever heard from doctors is, well, there can be an increased amount of UTIs. And I just don't think that's enough to just, if that's even, you know, sound, I don't think that's enough yeah, to. I, I'm not a doctor. Um, right. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. I, I'm yeah. obviously not a doctor, but, you know, UTIs to me, you know, in most circumstances do not sound like life or death situations. Right. Um, there is so much to, there's so much to unpack from what you just said. This is <laughs> totally yeah. wild. Um, yeah. So to put a tiny bit of context around the question that I'm about to ask, I'm an EMT and I think part of my job as an EMT is to, to almost constantly be a little worried about mm -hmm. whether I've received truly informed consent. And probably that extends all the way, you know, into every aspect of, of healthcare, um, you know, for, for everybody, even beyond EMTs, obviously. It should. It, it should, should, obviously. Yeah. What mm -hmm. you, you've described to me and, and also what we, you know, have emailed back and forth about is uh, not only a lack of informed consent, but not no consent whatsoever, not from a, a, a child who's going to be a patient who should have some sort of right, some sort of role in the decision or even their parent. I mean, to, to hear that physicians at one point, even in the 80s, created a medical emergency um, is that is that is totally it's, horrifying. That's totally horrifying. Yeah. No, it, it, it is. And, and I understand. I mean, I get this reaction a lot from people. people when they first learn about this, they just it's almost hard to believe it's that it's actually wild. been happening because it's so horrible and, um, and it seems so preventable. And right. yeah, no, in my case in the 80s, I mean, this was a Boston Harvard teaching hospital yeah. with, you know, the head of reproductive oncology surgery doing my surgery and my quote unquote informed consent. I actually have a copy of it was this is again before they were putting things typing them or putting them in, in um computers so it was handwritten by the doctor and it was something to the effect of uh patient and father have been informed of said procedure and consented to said procedure i mean it never even said what it was and then had my dad's signature and my little 15 year old oh my goodness signature so there's our informed consent quote unquote. that is mind-blowing <laughs> yeah Yes, this is yeah. So and this was at a reputable, right. you know, institution that's in high regard. Right. Um, and so if it's happening there, right? Sure. Where it, I mean, know, it's probably everywhere. Yeah. So yeah. So informed consent's a huge, huge piece of this. That is a key issue for, as you said, the child themselves, the person, the patient whose body is being irreversibly altered, is not having a say. So that is the crux of the issue. It's bodily autonomy. And, and this is a human rights issue. Totally. I mean, this is not just me saying it's a human rights issue. This is the United Nations and many UN bodies um, and many human rights organizations and increasingly, thankfully, medical associations and and LGBT orgs and um, folks calling this out as a human rights violation. And this has been, for the last couple of years, it has been getting called out as a human rights violation. Mm -hmm. And doctors are still doing it. Yeah, this is actually what's it going to take? A, this is a good um, 
kind of segue into into my next question. One of the one of the things that I asked you, and I tried to do it delicately when I emailed you because I knew that it probably didn't. It, it, like you've said in many, it, you know, um, posts on the Interact website, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, mm-hmm. and also in your stat post, intersex folks are different from trans folks. Um, mm-hmm. And right now, I'm imagining that that's a distinction that's really important for you to make. When I asked in my email, is there a preoccupation by non-intersex people with surgeries and genitalia and, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and would intersex folks prefer that we just talk about, um, you know, the social concerns and, and maybe even things like chromosomes? You actually wrote to me that, you know, unlike the trans community, you sort of do actually want to talk about these surgical procedures because of, of the, you know, lack of consent and um, because mm-hmm. they're so irreversible and because they can be so harmful, especially when they really aren't a lot of times necessary. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, after a procedure to remove gonads is done, what are the long-term effects? Obviously, you've been on, you know, hormone replacement therapy for a while, but what are some of the other you know, things that, that doctors and future doctors should be made well aware of before they even consider something like this? Sure. Yeah, the harms the harms are really numerous and varied depending on the situation, but there are some very common themes. Um, in, and again, I'm gonna, this is a general comment because I'm not going condition by condition, but sure. there is often loss of sensation, right, in genitalia. Um, whenever there's surgery, there's going to be scarring. Okay. So there's scarring that can, that can produce, um, problems for people. There is also, um, in some cases, depending on the procedure, um, a necessity to have repeated exams over, uh, sorry, repeated, yeah, repeated exams, but repeated surgeries over time as a patient grows. So let's say you're operating on a tiny baby's penis, you're going to need to um, operate again as they grow several times sometimes over the lifespan. So there are numerous repeated surgeries. And with that, whether it's numerous surgeries or one surgery, there comes with it a lot of trauma for intersex patients. Um, Children um, are being examined multiple times. Mm -hmm. They are having their in some cases, genitals poked and prodded. Many of us have memories of being in teaching hospitals, particularly where you'll be in the hospital or you'll be in there for a follow-up exam and a parade of, of residents, right, and interns will come in um, because it's a teaching hospital and will kind of lift up the sheet and you'll be discussed and looked at. And it, it's a very, very degrading and stigmatizing. Many people in the intersex community will talk about it. Um, and it sounds very much like sexual violence, right? It sounds very similar. Some of the reactions that people will have, um, including PTSD, which is real in our community. It's a very, very common um, symptom of not symptom of being intersex. It's a symptom of how we were treated, sure. <laughs> um, in, in the doctors, you know, in the hospital or in the examining room. Um, so repeated exams, um, medical photography is another thing that's often used. That's very degrading. So there's a lot of, um, 
there's a lot of social, emotional, psychological damage that I think actually is just as if not more harmful in many, many ways. And the impact on that is obviously personal and different for everybody. But there there are, again, a lot of common themes. And I mean, this is after doing this work now for many years and talking to hundreds and hundreds of intersex people. It's things like there's a theme towards like, you know, problems with intimacy or trust, right? Which sort of makes sense if you think about it. Um, you know, beyond just the doctor's office, um, eating disorders, I think, are very common um, in our community. I'm in, noticing that increasingly. And I think that's also a reaction, probably, again, I'm not a, a psychologist, but I think it could be a reaction to you know, just not having control over your body and, and feeling like you need to take control somehow. Um, there is um, just a lot of kind of shame and stigma. And so people, um, I think we have a higher incidence, incidence of depression um, as a result. So there's a lot of negative health outcomes that result from medical intervention, right, which is right. supposed to help and supposed to. And so you know, what we're saying to doctors now and to the medical community in general is like, what about the, you know, do no harm oath? I mean, does that not mean anything? You've been now hearing for two decades here in the United States. Um, activists started pushing back and speaking out um, two decades ago. And really increasingly in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of visibility. And, you know, that's thanks to the work of Interact and other intersex people and groups globally. And I think we're almost at a tipping point. I think the tide is starting to turn. Um, more and more organizations are stepping up and, and kind of supporting our position. And um, the medical community, particularly urologists and endocrinologists, I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. I keep talking about the medical community and doctors in general. And yes, the medical community and doctors in general need to have an education and there needs to be better understanding because when, you know, one of the 2% of the population walks into your office for something unrelated, but they happen to be intersex, it's very, very important to understand what that means for a variety of reasons. But the people that are actually, the, the community that's actually doing these, you know, perpetrating these human rights violations and doing these surgeries and these treatments are for the most part, pediatric urologists and endocrinologists, which mm. in the big picture is a very small, small sure. group of doctors. So this isn't like all doctors are bad. In fact, right. they're not at all. Doctors are great and we need their help. We, we want their help, particularly as consenting adolescents and adults. But the, the group that is, is doing these interventions on children without their consent have really dug their heels in. And it's, I think the urologists are probably the worst. They probably have the, the most to lose, um, you know, based on years of training, pediatric specific, you know, surgery training and whatnot. They probably have the most to lose in that if, if you're someone who has specialized in this, right, and it's finally banned, let's say there's a law that's passed um, that bans this finally, mm. what do you do? You know, I mean, my argument would be, <laughs> you know, this happens in a lot of different industries, you know, like newspapers, what happened to them? You know, right. like they're outdated now, you you adjust and you survive. And so why not adjust and survive and start focusing on treating intersex adults, some who right. may want surgery, some or adolescents, you know, who want surgery. And that's great. Like, none of us are anti-surgery. 
we're anti, you know, lack of form, informed consent. Right. And decision making power. So, um, I mean, that's my hope is that, you know, medical practice in general will become more informed and that the specialists, the endocrinologists, the neurologists, and the surgeons will start shifting their focus over to consenting intersex adults because there is a huge uh, gap in, in, in a huge need for care there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is another a good jumping off point. What is their past puberty? You know, so once someone is, they're no mm-hmm. longer a child, they have, uh, you know, they've, they've developed into, let's say a 17, 18 year old person. Is there any physical, um, treatment for options? Are there any, you know, psychological options that can be, or psychiatry rather, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, kind of what happens next? You've talked a lot about yeah. pediatrics. Yeah. Um, I mean, there certainly could be, uh, there just isn't. So, you know, I increasingly around the U S um, we're seeing more what they're called multidisciplinary centers of excellence or care for disorders of sex development or differences of sex development. So in these clinics, they're really trying to take more of a holistic multidisciplinary approach and including psychosocial, you know, support and having a team from a variety of specialties, you know, work with the child and their parents in, um, and all of that is, is great from the perspective of um, getting a lot of different opinions and, you know, helping parents make an informed decision if they're actually given, you know, all the full information. But what's happening is once those kids are, and, and, and most of those kids are still getting surgery, by the way. I mean, that's, you know, this is still ultimately ending up in surgical intervention. I you know, once they reach like college age, probably out of college. So it maybe creeps into the young twenties in some cases now. And again, this is pretty new that these centers of excellence are around. They stop being followed by pediatricians for obvious reasons. Um, and you just sort of fall off a cliff into this, like, well, go find yourself a doctor, you know, um, or you're off at college using the, the healthcare services Mm -hmm. that are at college. And there's, um, you know, maybe you have a prescription that was written by, you know, your endocrinologist your, or your pediatrician for hormone replacement. So you just keep filling that at the, at the university or you keep, then you keep filling it at, you know, the pharmacy down the street, whatever town where you're living in an apartment for your first job. And it just goes on and on without follow-up. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that's the problem. It, it just the care and the options for intersex adults just drops off, and you're left at well, you're left on your own where you are uh, navigating, you know this 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 healthcare world on your own, um, and depending with sometimes with a lack of information about yourself. So, you know what I experienced back in 1980 and up until you know 10 years ago this non-disclosure model of really having the truth and some major facts about my body hidden from me. Um, fortunately, with the dawn of the internet and, you know, with, uh, you know, just sort of healthcare improving over time, in some ways, this non-disclosure model is less common. Um, 
for kids, it, much of it falls on the parents, right? And so there's an increasing um, number of parents getting information and resources online and like providing their children with, you know, age appropriate information at right. age appropriate times um, in the best cases. But, you know, there's still lots of cases where, you know, people are finding out like when they go off to college and really they could have handled this information a lot earlier, you right, know? Right. Um, so, but, you know, that really, that model is, um, is still troubling, although it's, it's, it's gotten a lot better. Um, it's gotten a lot better, but, you know, I think medicine and, and society and parents have been just sort of forced into it, quite frankly, because of mm-hmm. social media and the internet. You can't hide information anymore. Everyone has access, um, starting at a very young age. And beyond that, and this is what I was just going to ask you about, Yeah, the internet must have been a really amazing tool for intersex people to come together and say, okay, yes. we're not, we're not crazy. We're not, this, this has all happened to a lot of us and we can right. find some sort of solace just in having each other. Absolutely. It, it has. And I, I think this is true probably for many, many groups. Right. Um, but yes, the, the internet has been a game changer for intersex people and I mean, I remember when I, you know, 11, 10, 11 years ago, when I found out the first thing I did, I got my medical records and the first thing I did is go home and I barely slept that night and I was mm. just Googling. Um, and, you know, I found some scary stuff as well as some valid stuff. Sure. So it's a mixed bag. Um, and at that point, I was not on Facebook um, I don't even know if Facebook existed then. Probably it was pretty new if it did. And so, um, or on any social media, but what there was, I found a support group. The, um, what is now called the AIS DSD uh, support group. It started off 21, two years ago as a support group just for women with complete androgen sensitivity syndrome. So, you know, 21 you know so at this point it had been around for 10 years when I found it but I didn't even know you know my own condition existed or anything about my myself so I had never found them but I found them online and today that group over the past decade has merged into a much broader group that supports intersex people with all different types of variations um, and their families and increasingly is being is focusing on on parents and young people and they have a conference every year so um in the summer where people who are lucky enough and have the resources to to get to you know wherever the conference is can actually go and spend a weekend with um other intersex people families um medical professionals who are allies um Mm. mental health professionals you know and it's it's an amazing amazing resource it's the ais dsd support group um and for me that that was life-changing and i have heard this from so many people i mean literally life-changing the best thing i ever did for myself was to find that group online. And at that time, it was an email listserv. I joined and just communicating on email as part of this group um, and realizing that I wasn't alone and just being kind of blown away that at how common it was and how not alone I was despite having felt alone for, you know, 40 years. Um, and then, 
you know, social media comes along and now Facebook is really right. where our community um, is is communicating and not just in the U.S., but globally. So a, a global there has been a global movement for a couple of decades. But what's happened in the last five years, I'd say, is an, an increasing collaboration. So, like, for example, I'm on a I'm on a Facebook private message chat um, and page that just exists with, you know, maybe two, two, three dozen intersex activists from every continent around the globe. And when something happens or somebody has a question or something happens in their country, you know, we share it and we talk about it. So there's just, it's just sort of incredible how much, uh, the internet and social media has changed. Um, intersex people's ability to communicate, not feel alone, feel more empowered and to share information and, and collaborate as, as advocates. So that's a good thing. Yeah. That Facebook group that you just mentioned where there's, you know, three dozen or so intersex Mm -hmm. advocates, not to immediately put the the pressure on you, but it, it literally sounds like you are the intersex Avengers. Like you're this team of like people in all these other different places all over the world, just kind of yeah. you know, working together. That sounds amazing. It, it, um, it kind of is. And it, it is amazing and um, satisfying in many ways. But I got to tell you, one of, one of the, the, the things that troubles me and troubles me about our community is the burnout factor mm. and the, um, that the, that, this is a group of people um, of varying degrees of resources, right? And right. and sometimes doing this work in countries that are very, very conservative. Um, and to even say out loud that they're intersex could could get them in trouble with the yeah. government. Um, so th- there's, you know, it's, but then even in places, you know, like the US or Western um, European countries, where there's a little bit more freedom to talk about this stuff. Um, there's this sort of like doing this work and telling these stories for a lot of people is very triggering. And you're sort of like bringing up the, the trauma over and over and over right. again. And, and, and there's also um, a new report just came out actually last month about how underfunded the intersex community and trans communities are in their advocacy work. Um, it, it's just like mind blowing. And so a lot of this work is being done at a volunteer level. Um, and you know, there's a real, there's a real burnout factor. You get people that are really great and, and helping to make change. And then they just understandably fall off the face of the earth sure. because they, they, they just can't do it anymore. Um, so this has been a real problem. You know, I'm fortunate, uh, although I have my moments, I'm fortunate to be the executive director of Interact, which is probably the largest group in in the world that's just focused on intersex advocacy and protecting the human rights of intersex youth. And, um, you know, I say that we're like the biggest intersex-led and intersex-only focus group in the world, and we have um, three and a half staff. Yeah. Who all work who all work remotely from home offices. We have a budget that's, you know, around three hundred thousand dollars. I mean, this is we're tiny. Yeah. Um so, you know, despite all of that, we're making lots of progress and there's lots of um 
of change and increased visibility happening, but um, there's also a lot of work ahead of us. So, you know, one of our goals is really raising that visibility to change hearts and minds in general in the general public and to increase awareness about it so that people can support our movement. Right. Winning change. some allies. Yeah, winning yeah. some allies. And we are increasingly, actually today, it's very interesting that we very coincidentally are doing this uh, interview today. Today is international intersex day of solidarity. So um, October 26th is intersex awareness day internationally. And that is a recognized date that goes back 21 years to the anniversary of the first public protest of intersex activists outside the American Academy of Pediatrics conference in Boston. And, and so that has become intersex awareness day. And so every, around every October 26th, there's a lot of, well, in the last two or three years only, there's been a lot more visibility. And, you know, if you Google it, you'll see a lot of media around that time. And then there's also, um, uh, today, November 8th, being Intersex Day of Solidarity, which has different origins um, uh, from outside of the U.S. around um, a famous intersex person. And it's, um, but what's interesting is it is today that we're talking about this. And actually, I've been reflecting on this, and we're going to be posting a blog post later today on our website about the increased support we're getting from a variety of organizations in the last, just in the last week. Um, a number of organizations have put out statements, including Physicians for Human Rights, um, which is really significant. Um, we have the, um, the North American Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecologists, um, and the Pediatric Endocrine Society, wow. notably supporting uh, a statement in favor of uh, delayed surgery and um, and uh, patient decision making. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it's starting to pop. And, you know, there are we're starting to get the attention. The American Medical Association is meeting. Their annual meeting is right now and over the weekend in Hawaii. And um, they have had they last year at their annual meeting um there was the board their board of trustees approved a resolution um that would have that was making a statement about you know uh ending these medically unnecessary surgeries and delaying it until people could have informed consent and it was put on hold for further study mm. and um that is still sort of the status, but we are hoping that with all the increased attention and statements coming out that folks at the American Medical Association are going to do the right thing. We've also right. been working with the American Academy of Pediatrics um, in a similar fashion, who have who also came out on Intersex Awareness Day with, with a very soft, supportive statement. It wasn't nearly going as far as we'd like, but right. I think I think they have, you know, long bureaucratic processes to get sure, these get sure. these things done but i think the tide is turning i think uh, particularly for the folks the doctors who are not ingrained in this kind of day to day in their livelihood are really shocked when they hear that this is still going on i mean right. most doctors will say what i heard about that but didn't that stop a long time ago it's really interesting so it's really time for the community the medical community to step up and start policing itself um and that's that's what we're we're hoping is is starting to happen. Right. You. Yeah. Self-policing is always kind of an interesting thing. It's because, like you said, it's it usually starts pretty soft and 
eventually mm-hmm. gets, you know, you get to the point. But um, it seems like Interact is having a, a kind of a, despite only having three and a half full staff members, um, <laughs> is having a really big impact. I, you know, you mentioned that some of the um, cornerstones of what Interact is trying to do is really raise visibility in the media. And I've, you know, watched mm-hmm. videos from Human Rights Watch and Interact's partnership and it looks mm. like there's one now with BuzzFeed, which is an amazingly um, popular site, obviously. And then obvi- mm-hmm. also, uh, you mentioned that Interact works to advocate for, for policy change. Um, let's assume that that uh, self-policing takes a little bit slower than, than you'd like for it to. Uh, mm-hmm. What are some of those policy changes that Interact would like to see and would like to, you know, if you could snap your fingers and make a couple of them happen? Um, would right. the surgery ban be the first one? A surgery ban would be lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, we either, either do that at the federal level across the board or state by state. Um, and so there are efforts to perhaps start doing that state by state. I'm not sure we, this is the right time to do it at the federal level. Gotcha. Uh, um, However, I think more immediately what could happen is uh, at the federal level, but particularly state by state, almost every state, if not every state, has laws on the books, existing statutes that we think apply to intersex children. For example, um, anti-female genital mutilation or genital cutting statutes, right, right? which are criminal statutes. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And are not written with an exception for intersex girls. So why are doctors and parents allowing the cutting of intersex girls? So um, we are in conversations with uh, a few different states' attorney generals about the possibility of enforcing those laws. Um, There's also anti-sterilization laws Mm -hmm. on the books that can be applied. So one thing is, you know, besides filing new legislation and and getting bans passed, um, you know, and and the medical community, as you know, doesn't like to be regulated or legislated. You know, everything's a case-by-case basis. They don't want to be, and I understand that, they don't want to be like locked down and tied down and not able to do something. Um, Our argument would be but in certain cases, there is absolutely no wiggle room. Right. There is like no question that this is unnecessary and that a delay in allowing a person to make a decision will not harm them. So, yeah, so those are some of the, the other tactics besides, you know, working with, within the medical associations um, to try to get them to do the right thing is, is looking at existing law as well as passing, um, potentially passing new laws. Um, you know, we're working with local at the city levels in a few different states on local uh, human rights commissions and um, and folks on the inside. Um, and there's a lot of interest in this in this issue for um, kind of, you know, making change. It's so I think, again, I think it's it's a bit of a capacity issue. Right. You know, like you said, we're, we're pretty small. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we're sort of casting a wide net. As you mentioned, we partnered with Human Rights Watch about a year ago and did this amazing, uh, I think, groundbreaking research here in the U.S. interviewing intersex people, families, parents, um, doctors 
doctors all anonymously. Mm -hmm. um, actually, everyone was anonymous who wanted to be anonymous and came up with this report that was launched this summer by Human Rights Watch and Interact. And, um, you know, that has opened up a lot of doors and a lot of people's eyes, I think, having this kind of qualitative data and this research that's saying, hey, this is what people are saying now. It's also opened up a lot of eyes to like, you know, when you get doctors to talk anonymously, we're getting a little bit more insight to right. how truly conflicted many of them are. Um, they also, they talk a lot about parental pressure, right? In some cases, in some cases, there are doctors who absolutely agree with us and say, there is no reason to be cutting this little girl's clitoris, for example. But the parents are demanding it. They're saying that they're going to go down the street to the, you know, to someone else wow. to do it if we don't do it. And so we want to make sure it's at least done in a safe and good way, which, you know, I think they're being pretty weak. I think they just need to stand up and say, no, this is wrong, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but this is the type of conversations we're having behind closed doors, you know, with some with some surgeons. They are, there is, you know, some of them are very conflicted. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a very, very complicated issue. And the, the other thing that we're doing, um, besides raising disability and, and working at the law and policy level, is working with intersex young people through our Interact Youth Program, which um, is pretty unique. We're, we're working with uh, intersex people in their teens and 20s to um, getting them connected online, working together on advocacy projects, um, kind of developing leadership skills and advocacy skills as, you know, the next generation of intersex advocates and their voices, you know, we feel really strongly need to be at the center of this right. as, you know, intersex children's voices need to be at the center of this with their own decision-making about their bodies. And so um, that's another thing that we're doing is we're working with, with our youth and they've increasingly are speaking out in the media and speaking publicly. When we started this project a few years ago, it was a totally volunteer unfunded project. People had, I don't think anybody was using their real name. People were using pseudonyms, writing, but, but expressing themselves and telling their stories on Tumblr. Right. And it's merged into where we have many young people, mostly from the U.S., but they're, they, we have people from all different countries, all different countries are members, um, speaking out and telling their story as you, as young of an age, age is 15. Yeah. We had a 15-year-old high school student talk to NBC Out this year, making comments about the Gavin Grimm case and how, you know, as an intersex person, what that meant to her. It's just, you know, it's mind-blowing to me how quickly this change has come. And I think, you know, in the last couple of years, I think the young people are really, really driving it. It's a very, it's a very, it's a generation that doesn't feel as limited yeah. about their choices or stigmatized about, you know, gender and sex and feeling that, you know, all of this does exist on a spectrum. So I think we have, you know, the trans movement and the gay movement in general ahead of us to thank sure. for that, you know, for paving, paving the way. Um, so yeah, lots, lots of good stuff to come. Yeah. It's, I, I myself am gay and, um, I really, really try to read a lot about people that came before me because I like to think of myself as like, you know, pretty activisty and um i you know i typically try to i call myself a loudmouth because it's a little bit mm -hmm. more accessible i think if i'm making fun of myself people can then be okay right. with the fact that i'm such an activist but right. what has absolutely floored me and it's so so exciting 
the generation, even after me, these teenagers are unreal. They are, and part of it is probably the internet, like you talked about, but they are just so ready to, to own their, their, their own self, whatever that is. And, um, and it's, it's totally amazing. And I, I'm going to have to Google that NBC out, um, footage because that's, I mean, I, I, I would love to know more about this and kind of, and I, and I could talk to you for 10 more hours about this. I, I promise you I will not. Um, and I, I'm sure I've said that in a, an interview prior to this also, but um, my last two questions for you, they're kind of fluffier Barbara Walters-y questions. Um, okay. <laughs> but essentially, you know, the, the first one's like, really, what's your hope for the future of intersex healthcare? Um, and the second is, what would you say to future doctors who are not intersex, who might listen to this and say, I know nothing about this and I need to read more. What would you kind of, how would you try to, I know though those are big, broad questions. Right. I mean, I think to, to, to doctors, um, I, you know, I would say, unfortunately there aren't any you know, resources that I know of that are like, you know, guide for doctors on the intersex population. Um, So I would say talk to intersex people, you know, or or if we're talking about medical schools, invite intersex people to come speak to your class and share their stories and share their experiences and perspectives. Really get a grip on the human side of this as patients. You know, you can read a couple of paragraphs in a book, which I think is what many of them tell me is about all they get, unless yeah. they go on to specialize in pediatric urology. And it's like, you know, it's just, it's just a statistic. It's just another quick paragraph. It, it's not really real. They're not introduced to all the nuances or the impact that this has on people. So I think the most important thing is, is really just talking to intersex intersex people, mm-hmm. um, you know, seeking out resources online from groups like Interact and others that are, you know, sharing stories and um it's it's much easier now to hear these stories you you know you you can go online and google them and and read um i think that's a big step just to get sensitized to it um and as far as what i think i the future what i'd like the future of intersex healthcare to be is pretty simple it's um a shift away from making this a social emergency um, in childhood, you know, and just an acceptance, a general acceptance of bodily difference and, uh, you know, sex and gender in some cases, and just being on a spectrum and, and trusting that intersex children are going to grow up to be, you know, smart adolescents and adults that can make their own decisions about Mm -hmm. their own bodies and letting that happen and shifting the focus of, um, care to adolescents and, adults and filling that gap that's needed because you know intersex people are not going to go away they need care and they need informed compassionate care um it just needs to be provided at a different time and 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 not imposed on them not fixing surgeries or treatments imposed on them before they can consent i mean that it's really as simple as that kimberly thank you so so much um, this is a, I, I, for me, this is a great, you know, first step into knowing way more about this and hopefully getting this particular podcast episode out to a bunch of people, um, who 
maybe someday will be you know wearing white coats themselves um so thank you so so much